The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, which among us, which, who among us doesn't love stories? And especially as a kid, who didn't love storybooks as a child? Here's a few of my favorites. Maybe this one's familiar to you. Little Blue Truck. Anybody familiar with Little Blue Truck? I think this is a recent book that was written. Uh, Little Blue Truck, I think my wife has it memorized from the amount of times that she has read it to our little ones. Little Blue Truck, Little Blue Truck goes down the, I thought about having, reciting it, but I'm not going to do that. Little Blue Truck, it's down the road, beep, 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 goes the, the toad or, or whatever, and he gets stuck in the mud, and then the toad and his friends help the blue truck out of the mud, and they live happily ever after, right? Might remember that story? What about this one? The Velveteen Rabbit. I'm going to be honest with you guys. The first time I remember getting emotional at a, at a, at a, like crying in a movie or crying in a story was the Velveteen Rabbit. Are you kidding me? Second grade, Mrs. Wade's class at Plain Elementary, we were reading through the Velveteen Rabbit, and I was like, what is, what is happening to me right now? <laughs> right? Beautiful story. Now, this one, this one was a favorite of mine when I was a kid. This is a picture of St. George and the Dragon. Let's see if it'll come up. There it is. Now, this has the stuff every nine-year-old boy loves. There's violence and severed limbs, and there's, you know, journeys into magical forests and up these beautiful mountains. He rescues the princess at the end of the story. Who doesn't love stories? Maybe Christmas rom-coms are your thing. You know, maybe, maybe um, I don't know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe or Star Wars is your thing. Who, who doesn't love stories? What's the universal appeal to these stories? Why do we love these stories? I think it's because no matter what the hero goes through, the challenges, the risks, and the tragedies, against all odds, what always happens, the good guy wins and lives happily ever after. I think the thing that we love about storybook endings is at the end of the day, everyone's happy and whole and the good guys win and peace reigns and the guy and the gal get together at the end of the story. And I wonder if one of the reasons that we love to read them is because we're so cynical about kind of the reality of life. We read those and we feel like it's a nice escape from what's real. Because we know, the cynic in us tells us, we know happy endings aren't a thing. Like, we read these stories and we think it's a nice escape from the tragic reality of the world that you and I live in. That's why we call them storybook endings, right? Because they only happen in storybooks. You know, we roll our eyes with a little bit of a groan. Anytime anybody talks about the, the prince defeating the dragon and rescuing the princess, it's like if only that's the way that life worked. Because we know in our life that happiness is fleeting, the good guys don't win, that peace was never an option, and the guy always seems to get with the wrong gal or vice versa. Storybook endings are for storybooks, we say. Now, the Jewish people in and around the time of Jesus believed in something like a storybook ending, not just for themselves, but for the whole universe. Wasn't an ending that was limited just to their nation, but it was actually for all people in all places, the whole world, the whole cosmos. They believed that history was going to end, well, happily. That there was a, a happy ever after that God was planning for his people. And one example of these prophecies that sort of foretell this happy ending was read just a moment ago in Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 25. Isaiah the prophet writes this lengthy prophecy of what God was going to do for his people. And at the end of this prophetic letter comes this climactic promise given about 700 years before the coming of Jesus. 
He's writing to Jews who are exiled in the kingdom of Babylon with this, he gives them this vision of this incredibly powerful and poetic, beautiful picture of the ending, where he promises that he is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Let's look again at Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Verse 17 is so striking that that God promises a remaking of the world, a, a comprehensive remaking of all things, a new heavens and a new earth. Now, we often assume that the Bible teaches that God's end game is ultimately pulling people away from this world, but actually, God's end game is that he's going to be remaking this world. The Hebrew scriptures tell us in Genesis 1, in the Garden of Eden, that God created all that exists, and he created it good. He made everything beautiful and good and and very good. Creation is made by God, and it's a good thing, though corrupted ultimately by human sin and human evil. It's why you and I can experience the world as having both like a a piercing goodness and incredible heartbreak. And one place that I, I think you've probably seen this is in your family. Like the, the reality of human families is that the, the, the capacity for just this incredible experience of goodness and joy is there with human families. But who can break your heart more than your family members? It's kind of a picture of the reality of this world. It's, it's God created it good, and there's this potential for amazing goodness, but it's also completely tainted and wrecked by human evil. The old world or the old age is this age of death and sickness and sorrow and tombstones and tears. But the Jews believed that God was going to remake his good world, a new heavens and a new earth, like Eden, but even better. It's new, it's, it's fixed, it's leveled up, it is glorified beyond sin, a place where God says through the prophet Isaiah that the former things shall not even be remembered or come to mind. Why do you have trouble sleeping at night? Because of how aggressive and powerful those former things are. For some reason, the visual that I get from this passage is that it's kind of like water displacement. You know when you like fill a tub with something or fill a container with water and you put something heavy in there and it kind of forces the water out? It's almost like the picture here is that when God recreates all things, it's like there's such, a, such an incredible density of all that's good and true and beautiful that it just displaces all of the former, thing, former things. Verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed." What does the prophet say is there in those new heavens and new earth? He says it's a land of gladness and rejoicing. It's like Easter Sunday on repeat, a land of gladness and rejoicing. But it's not just people who are doing the rejoicing. Look at this. God's rejoicing and God's gladness in his people fills the airwaves. It's a land of goodness and gladness and rejoicing. And notice what's not there. There's no lapses of justice, he says. He said the old sinner will pay for his sin. No no more of the days where the guy gets away with his abuse. The Lord will end it. No more lapses of justice. He says there's no sound of weeping or distress. Not only is evil gone, listen, there's not even distress anymore. Can you even fathom that? 
an existence on the other side of distress, distress is like the soundtrack of my day-to-day. And I think most poignantly in this, there's no death. He says, no more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days. No more grade school students being shot. No more men who don't fill out their days. No, no more young fathers being diagnosed with cancer. Earlier in this book, in chapter 25, there's another prophecy that Isaiah gives. And he says that there exists this covering and this veil that's cast over all people. This thick black drape of death. Do you remember when we, we uh, gathered at Chandler Creek Elementary School? For those of you who are around for that, and we had those big, thick black drapes. It's like there's this thick drape that's kind of cast over all peoples, the prophet says. Like death, kind of smothering and swallowing out people. But, but God promises through Isaiah that one day God will swallow up death forever. And the Jewish people believed that at this time, in the advent of the new heavens and the new earth, God was going to bring about resurrection. In fact, what they called this day when God came and restored all things, they called it the resurrection, sort of synonymous with this new creation. You see the promise of the resurrection in places like Isaiah 65, Isaiah 25, Ezekiel 37, and Daniel chapter 12. It was the day when God would raise up his people from the dead and restore them to himself. It's actually referenced in the New Testament in John chapter 11. There's a woman who's grieving her dead brother, and she says that she knows that one day her brother will be raised in the resurrection. The Jews believed in the resurrection, a remaking of all things. It's like this eternal spring where there's no more winter, no more death, and no more darkness. Let's keep reading, verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Look at the imagery here. It's of building homes and vineyards that's completely safe from invaders. How do you think this would land on an exiled people, an exiled agrarian people? He's saying there's coming a day when you will no longer be susceptible to exile. Not only will you not be exiled, but the possibility of being exiled once again is completely eliminated. It's the image of building your homes and your farms in safety from marauders. You you shall not build and another inhabit. You shall not plant and another eat. Like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. There's no more laboring in vain. No more bearing children for calamity, he says. Verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. It's this image of God hearing the prayers of the people even before they're offered. Verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Verse 25. They're safe even from predators. It's the end of predation. A beautiful, ordered, restored paradise. Eden, but leveled up. Now, the Hebrew people received this word from the prophet Isaiah in exile away from their homes. And the promise was that one day God would deliver this beautiful storybook ending. And it's like, can we even imagine the effect this would have had on those people? As I read this, I don't know about you, but it has the same kind of effect on me. It's just such a beautiful image. And we read it, and together we wistfully sigh and we say, if only... If only that were the way things ended. 
You read Isaiah 65 and you see this poetic and kind of beautiful imagery of this restored world and you say, it would sure be nice to be gullible enough to buy that. Of course, those kind of endings are for storybooks or religion, right? Of course, every religious system has some kind of belief about the ending. Many of them are storybook endings. But listen, here is the thing that sets Christianity apart. This is what makes Easter such an incredible day for Christians. Listen, the earliest followers of Jesus and Christians believed in this ending, but with one giant twist. The storybook ending has already begun. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Have it on the screen. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul the Apostle, this early Christian missionary, writing this letter to the city of Corinth, to the Christians there, just a few decades after Jesus' ministry. He says, remember the good news that I shared with you. That Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he was buried according to the scriptures, and that he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. You hear that and you say, what, Jesus rose from the dead? It's like, I know Jews believe that the resurrection was coming for all God's people at the end of history, but one guy right in the middle of history, and Paul says, yes, that's the good news. It wasn't in some distant, far-off land either. I mean, this took place miles from here. And Jesus appeared to people, tons of people, people you could write a letter to and ask about even now. Watch this, verse 20. Paul unpacks what this means for them. 1 Corinthians, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, through Adam's disobedience, death and sin were introduced into the picture. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all, all who are in Christ, he's saying, shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Paul says Jesus did come to, back to life, and in fact, he is the firstfruits of the resurrection. What does Paul mean by the firstfruits? Now, think again that these are agrarian people who would have at least been more familiar with growing crops than probably you are, definitely than I am. And agrarian people would have understood that first fruits are the kind of the first buds of the, the crop that is to come that functions as a kind of promise for the, for, for, the, for the provision of all of the rest that's going to be reaped. This is the first taste of what's inevitably going to bud. Paul is, Paul is saying that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Another way I think about it is, is like this. I, Took this picture a couple of months ago. Can you tell what that is? Can you make that out from the back? It's a patch of daffodils. Now, we, the Markhams and the Hoffmans have developed this tradition. Uh, in the middle of February, because Aaron and I, we share a birthday. Uh, well, we're a day apart, but it's close enough to say that we share a birthday. We've developed this tra tradition over the last couple of years 
where we go get Henry's Barbecue on Wade Hampton, you know, kind of making your way into Greenville. We get Henry's, we get the mustard-based sauce, we enjoy some sweet potato souffle and some barbecue and some fries together, um, enjoy that fellowship and time together, and then we go do an escape room in downtown Greenville together. And let me just tell you, if you want to do an escape room, you should do it with the Markhams, because <laughs> those are the people you want to do an escape room with. Uh, and this was, I think, I think this was February 18th. We were driving through downtown Greenville. I was getting coffee at that spill the beans, you know, right there in downtown Greenville. And I happened to look to my right, and I was in the back seat, looked to my right, and noticed this patch of daffodils. February 18th. I saw them that night, and as I was seeing these daffodils, it alerted me to the reality of the inevitability of spring. After this night, I happened to notice that everywhere I drove around town, I mean, for the next several weeks, I was seeing daffodils everywhere. I went, drove back, you know, from Greenville back into Greer, I saw daffodils. Driving around town in Greer, I saw daffodils. Uh, my wife and I went to Tennessee at the end of February. Everywhere we drove, we saw daffodils. In the middle of February, and the thing that's striking to me about that is when spring feels so far away, when it seems like winter still very much has its claws in us, daffodils begin to bloom. You know what daffodils promise us? That no matter how dark and cold and long and hard winter is, as dark, long, hard, and whole, you know, as they get in South Carolina, no matter how much of a grip winter has, no matter how distant spring might feel, no matter how often it feels like we reset the clock on Easter weekend and it feels like January again, Daffodils promise us that spring will arrive. Listen close. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is telling us that Jesus is like the daffodil of the eternal spring pictured in Isaiah chapter 65. The reason we celebrate Easter, the reason that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is a big deal is that the storybook ending has broken into the present. The storybook ending has already begun. Jesus' resurrection is like the hors d'oeuvres of that promised eternity. The first domino to fall in the ending that we see and we rejoice in in Isaiah 65. And that is exactly why we celebrate Easter, friends, because this thing ends like the storybooks. Maybe you hear that and you just think, okay, I understand that that's what Christians believe, but people don't just rise from the dead. You know what I say to that? I agree. People don't just rise from the dead. But that's part of what makes this so incredibly powerful, is all of this talk about Jesus' resurrection isn't in the realm of conjecture and philosophy. This is a question of yes or no. Did this happen or didn't this happen? Go read about it. People don't just rise from the dead, but it happened once, right in the middle of history. A real dude who really died really came back to life from the dead. And all of the best evidence actually points to that being the case. And if Christ raised from the dead, it means our world ends with a happily ever after. Maybe you hear us say this and you think, yeah, again, it sounds great. But what about all of the evil that's still in the world? I mean, the promised ending that's so great and, you know, sounds fine and all, but why the delay? I mean, 2,000 years feels like a little much. A lot of tragedy and heartbreak can happen in those 2,000 years. And actually, I would say that Christians, early Christians, actually struggled with this very same question. Just a few decades wrestling with Jesus' resurrection, wrestling with where Jesus is, 
And another author, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples and friends, wrote an answer to that question in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Let's read it together. Peter says, But do not look, overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and as a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Read this like a, like a purifying fire, purifying all of the dross. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be, live, ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What Peter's saying is, he's saying, look, don't be mistaken. The ending is coming. A new heavens and new earth will displace all that's old. It will purify all that's left of the evil and sickness and wrongdoing. It's it's all going to be burned up, leaving God's glorious new world. But he says, don't mistake God's patience for slowness. It's a mercy. Jesus wants us to be welcomed into this eternity with him. He invites us to believe. He invites us to hand ourselves over to him. And the reason he delays is because he is wooing us. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, let me just say to you, the storybook ending is available to you. You weren't here this morning by accident. Jesus is as alive and strong and able to get you where he wants you. And you you are here this morning for a reason. And I believe that. And I don't care if it's cliche because it's true. We make no bones about this. We want you to believe in the resurrection with us. And we want to share in the hope and the joy of the new world with us. We want to to be there with you, friend. We, We want to see you welcomed into eternity with us. And the way we access this is belief. We don't muster up good works. We aren't repaid for a life well lived. We don't give to enough charities. We don't vote for the right people. It's not how this works. We look to Jesus and we receive the promise that he's offering us here. That's what it means to become a Christian is you just say, Jesus, I buy this story. I believe that you were raised from the dead and that you bore my sin on the cross. And I just ask you, could you believe in this? And I won't even ask you, I mean, if if you could set aside for a moment whether this actually happened, I would just say this. Don't you want this to be true? Don't we want there to be a happily ever after to this story? I know we're all familiar with what took place at Covenant School a couple of weeks back. But the thing that struck me, I mean, mean, that story hit so close to home for me. A a pastor who lost his nine-year-old little girl to the hands of, of evil. The statement that he released in light of that tragedy was incredibly powerful. I'm just going to read this from Newsweek. The senior pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church confirmed that his nine-year-old daughter was among the six killed in Monday's shooting at a Nashville private Christian elementary school. In a single-sentence statement Tuesday morning, Chad Scruggs, father of Haley Scruggs, addressed previous reporting that his daughter was among those who were killed by the 28-year-old shooter that left three children and three adult staff members dead. This is what he said. Through tears we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life once again. 
Let me just ask, who has a better story than this? Are we supposed to just develop cold indifference to tragedy? Is, is all of this just nothingness and darkness until the darkness wins and snuffs all of us out? Or does Jesus' resurrection actually offer us a kind of otherworldly hope that our bones ache for, that Jesus will remake the world, and that his resurrection is a promise of that? If you're a Christian and you were here this morning and you have placed your faith in Jesus, here's what you can know with certainty. Listen, what happened to Jesus is what will happen to us. You may die. You will die. You know, barring the Lord Jesus' return, you will die. But you will be resurrected to a new and permanent glorified life just like the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, again, Paul says that Jesus is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul is so sure that, that Jesus' followers will be resurrected. Like Jesus, he says Christians don't die, they take naps. Because what happens when you sleep? Inevitably, you wake back up. So there's coming a day, Christian, when you're going to take a nap. And you will, you will be woken up in the resurrection to the glorious face of the Lord Jesus. We will wake back up resurrected just as Christ was resurrected. What doesn't this change? <laughs> this, this affects everything for us, Christian. We celebrate Easter. On Easter Sunday, we celebrate, but our whole lives are lived in light of the shadow of Easter, the resurrected Jesus. He poked a hole in the black veil as a foretaste of what's to come, and so everything is different. Everything is different. What is our hope, Christian? It's the resurrection. What is the aim of our lives? It's the resurrection. What's the thing that motivates us day after day after day? It is the resurrection. Our decisions are shaped by it. What we do with our money is shaped by it. What we do with our bodies is shaped by it. Where we live, our priorities are shaped by it. Even our grief is shaped by it. It doesn't mean that there isn't tragedy or sadness. No. We, we, tragedy and sadness is, is a foreign intruder to God's good world. But we have hope that darkness cannot touch because Jesus isn't dead. He has kicked this thing off and there is no reversing it. So we have hope and we have joy and we are buoyed against all manner of evil and injustice and setback because Jesus isn't dead, Christian. The devil's back is broken and it cannot be mended. That's what leads Paul to sing, oh, 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 oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? That's what leads Johnny Cash to sing, ain't no grave can hold my body down. I wonder if you're here this morning and all of this sounds just absolutely crazy to you and you have a million questions. I'm sure you do. I just invite you to meet me for coffee tomorrow night. I have this little blurb on the screen here. Panera Bread and Greer. Tomorrow night, 7.30 p.m. I'll be there. If you want to come talk about this, if, you're, if you've been a Christian for decades, if you are new to the faith, if you have a million questions spawned by the stuff that we've talked about this morning, I'll be there. We'll probably have a handful of other people from church there. We'd love to talk with you. We'll spend some time there. They close on us, we'll sit outside and we'll loiter there. We'd love to talk about the meaning of the resurrection together. Storybook endings, daffodils, and you. The true story of the whole world concludes with a bang, a glorious, happy ending. And like a daffodil with the promise of spring, Jesus' resurrection means it's already dawned.
So we can have hope, we can have joy, we can have peace as we await glories untold. And to me, that is worth celebrating. Here's the invitation for the next few moments. Just a second, the band is going to play, and this is where we just invite everyone to respond in our seats in prayer. How would the Spirit of Christ have you to respond this morning? Maybe you're here this morning and you're one of the beat up and grieved that I prayed for a few moments ago, who brings heartbreak and sorrow into the room this weekend. Maybe what the Spirit is prompting you to do is to pray for a restored hope and restored joy in this story. Maybe you're here this morning and you, you were one of the ones that I mentioned who was completely numb to all of this. Would you pray that God would electrify you with hope? Maybe you're here this morning and you need a renewed passion for Jesus. Maybe the Spirit would have you to pray for just a kind of reawakened love for Him. To think how, how incredible this, this promise of this ending is for those who are in Christ. Would you pray that Jesus would press you further into Himself press you further in life with him and in obedience to him, that he would reawaken your love for him. Maybe here this morning, the, the way that you need to spray, pray is that the Spirit would enable you to believe. There's this great story in the Gospel of Luke where there's a soldier who's filled with all kinds of doubts and all kinds of questions about who Jesus is. Jesus invites him to believe, and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe that's what you need to pray this morning. I believe, help my unbelief. May we be a people whose lives are completely overshadowed with the goodness of Christ and his resurrection. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray to you as the one who is forever glorified, who is forever lifted high, who stands forever as king over all nations. We offer our lives to you, we offer our hearts to you, and we pray, Jesus, would you lead us by your Holy Spirit and direct us in how you would have us to go. I pray for the heartbroken this morning, I pray for the weary, I pray for the numb, and I pray for those who are wrestling with belief. Lord Jesus, would you help us to see and believe, and would you help our unbelief? We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.